A.M. Dasu has an impressive CV. She's a campaigner and activist, particularly for the rights of refugees. To mention just a few of her accomplishments. In 2017, she was awarded the International We Need Diverse Books Young Adult Mentorship. And in return, she's mentored young writers to publication. She's co-director of Inclusive Minds, an organisation which is set up to represent and champion diversity in children's books. She's written a non-fiction book about Mohammed Yunus, uh, the people's banker. And now she's written Boy Everywhere, a novel about Sami, a young Syrian teenager who is forced to flee Syria when civil war breaks out. I'm so pleased to welcome A.M. Dasu to In the Reading Corner. Can I call you As? Yes, sure. <laughs> Would have been a bit odd calling you A.M. all the way through <laughs> the interview. So Boy Everywhere is, uh, it is essentially one boy's journey, isn't it? From his home in Syria to his new home in England. And we're going to explore um, the different parts of his journey in a little while. But before we do that, um, one of the things that struck me is that there's been a lot of publishing recently about refugee experience, and particularly for children. So I wondered what it was that you wanted to do differently. Well, Boy Everywhere was born from my desire to challenge stereotypes. Um, I wanted to write a book that was different to those already published about the crisis you know, for years, we'd only seen grey rubble, debris on the news, or refugees on boats. And I think everyone had forgotten that Syria is one of the oldest civilised countries. Um, they have high-end hotels, they had McDonald's, KFCs, Nike shops and Costas before the war began. And I wanted people to know that. I wanted them to know that Syrians had lives just like ours, and the media's focus on the conflict wasn't the full story. Um, the focus had been on refugees not knowing English, wanting our jobs, taking our space. So I wanted to show that actually they do know English. Syrians have English speaking schools. My friend Ahmed, who is a refugee, has studied English literature at university, at Aleppo University, and he's read Chaucer, and I haven't. <laughs> um, I wanted people to know that, you know, they had jobs just like us. Some were educated, some were department store buyers. You know, these were hardworking people that were coming here, having to start again. And it was really important to me that I wanted to challenge the narrative that refugees are needy and desperate and instead show the reality of their lives and the choices that they're forced to make. Mm -hmm. And also focus on what and who they leave behind and how difficult it is to start again. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to create a window that would allow readers to experience how it feels to have it all and then lose it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I did mention in my introduction that you'd work with refugees, but you're not Syrian yourself. You've obviously got Syrian friends, but I wondered what steps you had to do to ensure the veracity of your story. So I suppose I'm asking in a way, did you have to research to get this right? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm not Syrian and I'm not a refugee, you're right. Um, but my ancestral background, background is um, a couple of generations ago from Iraq, and then they moved across the subcontinent, South Asia, via Africa to the UK. So I know what it's like for a family to have to start again, to be privileged. We have a privileged poverty story in my own family. Um, but that's why it was so important for me to sort of show a different side. 
but also with, with regard to the research, I was really, really keen to um, make sure that it was authentic. Um, it's taken me exactly five years to get to publication. And I can honestly say I have not cried about anything as much as I have about Boy Everywhere, especially during the editing processes, because this story wasn't about me. It was about people who have suffered great challenges and they deserve representation that shows their reality. Um, I wanted to do justice to everything refugees and Syrians had told me to share. And I wanted to represent them holistically as real people you could imagine meeting. Mm -hmm. So, as you said, I've been supporting refugees by setting up various fundraising campaigns to provide food and aid for many years. But I knew this wasn't enough. I wanted to do something long lasting that would put a spotlight on their achievements, their culture, their backgrounds. So I knew from the start what this story was going to be about. I knew that Sammy's dad was going to be a doctor, Sammy's mum was going to be a teacher, and then we they were going to come here and they were going to you know, have to clean houses and work in factories and lose it all and suffer. Um, so I began by looking at articles and footage about life inside Syria um, and in refugee camps. Um, I watched interviews of children sharing their experiences of the bombing, the trauma, the bad dreams, their hopes to live like normal children. But because I knew this, story, uh, this research wasn't enough to make my story authentic, I looked at videos online of Syrian teenagers chilling out in cafes, in schools, on social media. Um, I looked at photos on, of Damascenes, you know, that they shared themselves on Instagram. I watched rap songs on, uh, of Syrians on YouTube where they were laughing, you know, going horse riding, playing the piano, violin, dancing, wearing chinos, dresses, just living their normal happy lives. I even, you know, in order to capture the English that Syrians use, I went on to Syrian government news websites to double check things. Um, and through my fundraising, I'd, you know, I was already aware of some stories, but I asked various charity workers to connect me with Syrian families. We settled in the UK so I could personally support them. So I spent time with various Syrian families in my community. Um, I spoke to refugees, um, some who'd spent time in detention centres. And I also reached out to my wonderful friend. Um, she's a picture book writer um, uh, from um, Damascus, and she moved to the UK after the war began. And I asked her to read my book. And to my delight and relief, she did, and she loved it. And she told me that it was really important and it was much needed and gave me invaluable advice about how the middle class experienced the war in Damascus. And because of her, I changed Sammy's upper class uh, life to middle class and it was just tiny adjustments sort of you know like um changing sammy's dad's car from a mercedes to a toyota um you know tiny things and through her i met my dear friend in damascus who spent an unbelievable amount of time uh, answering my questions back checking my book um, and it was really serendipitous because her family in Damascus mirrors Sammy's family in the novel. She's a teacher, her husband is a surgeon, and they have a 12-year-old boy and a younger daughter. Um, so my friend in Damascus passed the, my book on to her students and her son, who also gave encouraging feedback. And they told me that the characters in the story could be them, and that the book said exactly what they wanted to know. So that gave me more confidence. Coming on to your book then, it, it divides really, although it's not set in sections, there are three discernible sections to the book. There's, there's Sammy's life in Syria, then there's this gruelling journey that uh, the family make to England, and then there's the kind of uh, reception and resettlement um, in England. So I wanted to take each of these sections and think a little bit about them. And one of the first things that struck me um, about the war in Syria 
I don't know that many people necessarily understand what the fighting is about. And you cut to the chase in your story. So tell us, you know, tell us a little bit about what this war is actually about. <sighs> I think it's to summarize it very quickly, it's it's about staying in power. What started it was basically some teenage boys writing some graffiti, anti-government graffiti, and they were imprisoned and tortured. And so obviously their parents and their community came out to protest to get them out. And they were shot at by the government for protesting and um, going up against them. Then again, at the funeral of the people that had been killed that the day before, the government came again and attacked the people at the funeral. And so everyone was enraged in Syria and there was already resentment building and people spoke up and they started coming out into the streets peacefully and they were attacked. And so when they were attacked, rebel groups formed to fight against the government. But then so many people got involved and that's when it got complicated. So you had different countries supporting different groups you know, you had the US and the UK supporting one group, you had Russia and Turkey supporting another group. And so there was a lot more infighting and there was just chaos and people were dying. And then when the question arises of why did men flee, they left because they would have been drafted as soldiers in the government. They would have had to, to either do or die. Mm -hmm. And if they, if they did fight, you're killing your own people. Mm -hmm. Who wants to do that? So they they, they left because they thought, we'll be back soon. Surely it'll be over. It wasn't over for years. You talked about the catalyst for this. And as I was reading that, you know, it's so easy to think that's over there. But we live in a fragile state. I'm not going to, I'm not saying we're going to break out into civil war tomorrow. But things are fragile and things are fragile in other parts of the world. And I'm sure in Syria, they didn't think that the next day there would be civil war. So it is relevant to us at that level too, isn't it? Absolutely. I remember the sheer inspiration for this story was one moment in time. I was in 2015 and I was watching countless news broadcasts about the influx of refugees to Europe. And it was one interview that showed refugees in a muddy camp wearing Nike trainers, holding smartphones, talking about what they'd left behind. And it was a light bulb moment. I realised that... It takes a government to take one wrong step and brutal force and we could be those people. And if a bomb or, you know, was to hit my street, I would be that person fleeing with my Nike trainers, my iPhone. And that was the moment that I realised that their lives were so similar to ours and how easily a civil war could bring the same fate upon me. Mm. Talking about um, they could, it could be us or people like us uh, one of the things in describing Sammy's life um, you obviously show him as a keen football player and who does he support he supports the global team Manchester United <laughs> and he talks about us when he's talking about Manchester United he talks about us and our team um, and it you know it takes something like that to make us realise how connected we all are. And sport in particular has this capacity to connect people around the world. Um, I was going to invite you actually to read a little bit uh, from the book. And I think from early on in the story where we get a sense of what Sammy's life was like. 
yeah, so this is in chapter four where Sammy doesn't yet know that he's leaving Syria. His parents are protecting him. They've told him that they're moving. He's been asked to go pack his sister's toys and he's now gone in, in going into his room to pack his things. I slumped down on the rug, not knowing where to start. My desk was cluttered and the bookshelves were bursting. I spotted my Meccano car in the corner under my desk and crouched low to pull it out. I built it on the afternoon of my ninth birthday. Bubba came up to help me fix the engine to the chassis and then we'd taken it downstairs into the kitchen and watched it shoot across the smooth marble floor and crash into the patio doors, both of us grinning. Mama yelled at us for marking the doors and banned it from the kitchen. Dust fell off the metal plates onto my sleeve. I raised it above my head and looked at its wheels and smiled. Good memories. We'd made so many in this house. I swallowed and put the car in a box. I couldn't get rid of it, even if I didn't play with it anymore. My helicopter drone sat on the windowsill. I picked it up and closed my eyes. Tete had bought it for me two years ago, but I hardly got to fly it. I wondered when I'd be able to go outside and fly it again without worrying about jets or missiles soaring over us. I couldn't even go fly it into Shreen Park with Joseph because of the president's ban on drones. I pulled a t-shirt from my drawer, wrapped it around the helicopter and put it in the box beside the car. It wasn't going to be easy to pack away my whole life in this house. I turned to the shelves and started taking out my books and PlayStation games. They held fewer memories and would be quicker to pack. And I figured if I cleared my shelves before dinner, Mama would see how productive I'd been and hopefully be less irritated with me. And at that point, of course, he doesn't realise how quickly they're going to go or where they're going. He just thinks they're moving at this point. Yeah. And it literally is very instant. Uh, it, they're not telling anyone. It's very covert. And he doesn't even have time to say goodbye to his friends. And then he's on this arduous, gruelling journey uh, to England. He passes through Lebanon um, where he sees a refugee camp, uh, people that are poorer than him, that don't have uh, the money to buy uh, a fast track, if you like, through to England. He passes through Turkey, through Greece uh, and so on. Now, you do tell us how terrible that is. But as I was reading it, I also thought you're not really telling us exactly how terrible this is. Is that true? Yeah, <laughs> 100%. There were many dark parts in the original manuscript. Um, I had to take them out because it's a younger audience. I had put in a lot more, uh, many stories because, again, I didn't want to just focus on the middle class experience. So I brought in darker stories by people that had, had to walk over the Turkish border and what they'd been through. And even the detention centre experience, I had to really water that down um, People that leave there are usually extremely traumatised. There are so many mental health issues and suicides, etc. And I did keep the family in there longer than some families would be with the proof that they had, simply to show what it feels like to be locked up when you're just trying to seek safety. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the, the key message for me was I wanted to show that these people could fly here, they could get here, before the war, when things were safe, they could come and arrive at Heathrow Airport or Manchester Airport like normal travellers. And now that they were not safe, they needed refuge, they were not allowed in. Yeah. You introduced Sammy to another boy in the Turkish um, hold where they're kept waiting for their boat um, uh, to cross the Mediterranean. He's called Adam. And I suppose you were actually showing another 
root by having this boy who Sammy becomes friends with. Yeah, that's exactly why I um, wanted to write Adam's character and story in, in the book, because I wanted to show the experience that we're used to hearing about. Obviously, Sammy's is not just the one experience. There isn't ever one experience. And again, the reason I chose Sammy's journey and I made him fly was because that is a route that people take. But at that time, because of what we've been exposed to, I didn't even know that they flew. And then most people I know um, have driven from Damascus to Lebanon and flown from Lebanon to Turkey. And then if they've not come in you know, via the UN and they have sort of been smuggled in, they've taken a flight from either Spain or somewhere. So yeah, this is a alternative route. Um, but yeah, equally, Adam's journey and also some other refugees that I mentioned in Turkey, such as the Damascus guy, etc. Those were based on real stories. You said that you cried a lot when you were writing this story. There were lots of things that made me deeply sad. And there was one moment that really brought the tears to my eyes. I don't think I'm even going to be able to read it without getting tearful. (laughs) And it's the bit where they just arrive at Heathrow and the father says, we're from Syria. We come here to seek asylum. And I think it was the kind of trust in that statement. Kind of broke my heart, really. I know. You can see, I think there's one sentence in there where in the plane where Sammy sees his mum and he sees the relief on her face. She's been so um, sort of tense this whole time since they've left. And he sees that she she looks lighter as as they approach her down the plane. And things seem hopeful. He, he notices his father's nervous. But yeah, they expect to just go through the airport and go to Manchester. And then what happens next is completely unprecedented. It's, it's interesting that sometimes understatement can be very moving, though, I think, with that sentence, you know. Um, but I want to move on to, because, you know, uh, that a lot of our listeners are teachers, librarians, people in school who can make differences to young people's lives and they're out there doing the best that they can I only know teachers that have excellent intentions towards wanting to support young people it's very hard sometimes to get it right you know we might assume that children want to talk about their experience and sometimes for trying to get it right you can do it wrong (laughs) so I just wondered what thoughts you had about Uh, when children settle into school and what are the best ways of supporting children that have been through Sammy's experience? Well I've I've been a school governor so I really do appreciate the challenges that teachers have, a lot of pressure and in schools where you've got um, you know a refugee intake you'll normally be in a diverse area you know you'll have a, a lot more sort of to deal with such as English as a second language and free school meals and deprived communities etc so so many different children to, to, to support and so many needs but I think one of the key things that I wanted to show in this book and the reason I wrote it was I wanted us to focus on what we have in common what what, what did they leave behind what was their life like before what did they like doing obviously some children will be more traumatized there are some children that come here from Syria or from other countries and they fit in seamlessly, they try to pick up the language, they imitate the accent and they pick things up really quickly. Obviously there are other children who are traumatized, very quiet and withdrawn, but all of them will have had something that they enjoyed, whether it's football or as in the book, you know, Sarah has Dolly Coco. So when she comes here, she hasn't spoken, but when, you know, Iman, the family in in the UK, when, when she gives her that teddy bear, it warms her. 
she starts interacting more. You can make a connection in many ways. You know, football is something that everybody plays around the world. And each little person doesn't like a teddy bear or a doll for comfort or a book. There are so many books, actually. So I've got a Syrian friend in, and he doesn't know how to tell his daughters about the refugee experience. He finds it really difficult. So there are books, you know, there are picture books, which you can sit down with and just look at the journey or see if, you, if they want to talk about it. And if they don't, then look at other picture books, which might encourage discussion. Also, a friend really helps. So that's, again, you know, with Ali in Boy Everywhere, things change for Sami because of Ali. Sami feels all alone and vulnerable and upset when he gets here. And it only takes one person to speak up for you, one person to see you for who you are, uh, for you to feel that hope. So sometimes just pairing somebody with a friend, that would really help. Um, I was going to ask you to read a second extract from the story. I had intended to ask you a little earlier to read that because it's from earlier in the story, but I think I'd still like to hear it as a contrast with Sammy's earlier life, just to remind us of what he's been through. Okay, so this is um, in chapter six and uh, they've now arrived in Turkey. They were supposed to go to a hotel, but the smugglers brought them to a dingy apartment and locked, well, he's going to lock them in. We trudged through the muddy front yard and through a wooden side gate into the backyard. I could just make out some iron railings. Behind them was a stone staircase which the driver led us down. Baba reached out for my hand and I took it, surprised to find Baba's was trembling. I held my hand out to Mama as she carried Sarah and we all moved down carefully, making sure we didn't miss a step and tumble. We walked through a creaky door and into a room full of people. The driver went to speak to a tall, thin man in a language I guess was Turkish and then nodded to Baba as he walked back out. He locked the door behind him and the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. Why had he locked the door? What if there was a fire? How would we get out? I looked around. Were we going to stay in this one room with all of these people? There were no windows, just the locked door behind us. The only light from the candles dotted about on the floor. We followed Baba between groups of people trying not to step on anyone. Some lay on their backs and stared at the ceiling while some slept. A woman rocked a baby back and forth. The room smelt tangy of mould and stinky armpits. I tried not to breathe in with my nose, but I could still taste it in the back of my throat. Baba stopped in a corner where space had been made for us. Go to sleep for a bit, he said. Sleep? There was no way I'd be able to sleep. I leant against the cold wall looking around the room. There were so many people. I could hardly see the floor. There had to be at least 30 of us. The people became blurry. I couldn't see them clearly anymore. Tears spilled down my chin and splashed onto my jeans. For the first time since we left Syria, what we were actually doing had really hit me. We had left home. Home. Home where my bed was, my clothes, the fridge full of food, where the maid cleaned up our mess and kept everything in order. Now, I was in chaos and I had no idea how long we'd be here. A day? A week? How were we supposed to get to England from this dump? What if the only way was on a boat? My mind raced with questions, even though I didn't want to think anymore. I looked at Baba. He had his eyes shut. Sarah lay on Mama's chest, her eyes closed tight as if to block out everyone and everything. Mama's fingers glided slowly over one prayer bead than the next. I wanted to shout and scream and ask why we were here, but I knew I couldn't. 
We were all in the same situation. I had to stay quiet. Mama said so. You can do this, Sammy, I told myself. It'll all be okay once you get to England. And the good news for Sammy, at least, is that he does find home and friendship. And as I want to thank you so much for writing such an important book, but also for talking to us today about Boy Everywhere. I know it's been very well received and I hope to see lots of schools picking it up and reading it to their classes too. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk, plus via iTunes or SoundCloud or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.